Father, we are gathered here this morning to be reminded of just that truth, how much you love us far more than we could ever imagine. And Father, we just want to bask in that this morning and understand it in deeper ways. Father, I pray that you would uh, make your spirit uh, um, alive here this morning as we wrestle with your word and talk about sexuality and how that plays out in our lives and our culture and uh, give us the ability to, to listen deeply and, and to reflect and, and to, to wrestle with uh, one of those areas that uh, sometimes it's hard to talk about, but one of those areas we need to wrestle with. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Recently, uh, the chaplains at the University of Nebraska took a survey of incoming freshmen and asked them this question, how much influence did your church play on your views of sexuality? Of the freshmen they surveyed, 2% said that their church had anything to do with their views of sexuality. Only 2%. Uh, Some of the comments that they uh, got back were a bit humorous and worthy of quoting. One guy said, people in my church don't believe in sex. (laughs) Another said, our church is boring. They don't talk about sex, dating, or marriage. It's probably just as well. They'd make that boring as well. (laughs) In our youth group, we talk about sex. We talked about sex but somehow avoided all the juicy stuff. There's something about that survey that makes me sad because sexuality is such a huge piece of life. And given what's going on in our culture, you would think it would be an opportune place for us to speak into. But we're not having much influence or impact helping people form a biblical worldview. So let me give you a piece of that worldview this morning, and I want you to wrestle with it as I talk. But it's a very succinct statement. I want you to keep it in mind. There is no such thing as safe sex. No such thing as safe sex. In a recent study conducted by... uh, ChristianMingle.com, Christian singles between the ages of 18 to 59 were asked, would you have sex before marriage? What do you think the percentage of the response that said yes was? 63% of the single Christian respondents indicated yes. I think a bunch of those who said no were lying because I've read other statistics that said the number is well over 70%. We're talking about a sexual ethic and I'm not picking on singles this morning because I think most of the people before they were married were in that category so it's applicable to most of us here. People are not living out the biblical sexual ethic really was struck by a response to this survey by a guy named Kenny Luck. 
He writes this, he says, In my 30 years of youth and adult ministry experience, this is as unfiltered, direct, and honest as a question and answer can be. He's talking about the survey. He says, In practice, Christian young adults have become sexual atheists. In other words, God has nothing to say to them on that subject of any consequence or at least anything meaningful enough to dissuade them from following their own course of conduct. It is the ultimate oxymoron. A person who at once believes in a wise, sovereign, and loving God who created them and all things can also believe simultaneously that that God or he should not, cannot, or will not inform their thinking or living sexually. I think that statement of being sexual atheists is not only true for a majority of Christian singles, it may be true for Christians in general. We've been working through a series called Modern Family, and today we're dealing with the issue of sexuality. Next week we'll end up the series on Palm Sunday as we prepare for Easter. Um, But what I want to do this morning is two things. I want to talk, first of all, about how our culture views sex. Um, You you get this in all kinds of ways. Just sit down and watch television for a night, and you're bombarded with the culture's understanding of sex. And I'm going to talk about some of those beliefs that our culture has. And then I want to give a biblical understanding or biblical theology of of sex. So uh, the culture and then the scriptures. So let's talk a moment about how our culture views sex. These are just five observations about it, things I think you find true in our culture. Uh, um, They're they're not all uh, what everybody in the culture believes, but, but you find these lots of places. Sex is simply sex. Uh, This is the notion that sex is simply an appetite. This is materialism gone to seed. It's this notion that because we're the product of evolution, there really is no spiritual dimension to people. There are no souls. They're just bodies. And and if we're simply bodies, then we have appetites. Uh, You get thirsty, you drink. You get hungry, you eat. You, You feel the need for sex. You just have sex. And it's it's just a physical act. It's it's a little bit like washing your hands. Yes, it's more intimate, but that's uh, really just the fact that it involves different pieces of the body. And the notion is that sex is no more mysterious or sacred than the desire for food or water. I mean, there may or may not be a soul, but even if there is, sex has little to do with the soul. And that attitude is reflected in our culture. You you see it coming out more and more, especially with this notion uh, people call friends with benefits. It's this idea we don't need a framework or commitment. After all, it's just an appetite. If we have a friendship, then we might as well explore the sexual side of that. No reason not to. It's, It's just like food. It's just like going out to dinner. It's just like drinking a glass of wine. It's just, you know, it's simply sex. The problem with that is it doesn't fit very well with reality. If sex is only an appetite, then why does our acting out of sexuality 
cause so much emotional damage and bring with it such baggage. It doesn't happen when we eat. It doesn't happen necessarily when you drink a glass of water. Maybe there's something more going on here than just shaking hands. Second attitude you see in our culture is that sex is private and individual. This is the notion that the community really has no right to speak into our sexual lives. What happens in the bedroom is nobody's business except those people in the bedroom. Even a Supreme Court decision that kind of reinforced that notion. It's a private and individual affair. There's an interesting book out called uh, Sex and the I World. And he argues in that book, Christian believer argues that book, and he's analyzing our culture, that in our culture there are only three taboos when it comes to this arena of sexuality. The number one is you may not criticize someone else's life choices or behavior. That's taboo to do that. Number two, one may not behave in a manner that coerces or causes harm to others. And obviously it's looking at immediate harm. Nobody's talking about the long-term consequences of sexuality in our culture. And third, one may not engage in a sexual relationship with someone without his or her consent. If activity, sexual activity is within those bounds then the community has nothing to say. The idea behind this is that all activity is privatized and individualized. And, And there is no sense that our sexual morals or behavior has any impact in the community or beyond ourselves. And individual rights trump cultural good. That is a lie. Individual behavior has community impact. It's not as private and individual as we want to make it. There is great historical evidence that sexual morals have a ripple effect in our culture and ultimately impact the common good. Historian looked at it, 86 cultures throughout history, and one of the things he discovered is that when fidelity removed itself from the culture, the culture began to disintegrate. We don't like to think that way about sexuality. We like to think it's our own, our own deal and it really has no impact beyond ourselves. But it's just that the impact is far more subtle and long-reaching than we realize. It's kind of like the culture is this sweater that is knitted together with all these various pieces of yarn. We think we can take one piece of the yarn and snip it and take it out and it doesn't have any impact on the rest of the sweater. But that's not true. You start nipping threads in the sweater and it's all knitted together. It begins to unravel. Cohabitation, divorce, premarital and extramarital sex, homosexuality, sexual immorality is playing havoc with our culture. It's affecting our views of the family, our views of kids, our views of what kids need to grow up healthy, our view of women. It's beginning to tear at the social fabric, destroying the structure of the family. And when you do that, (laughs) it has a ripple effect. Now, it may take 10, 20, 
30 years. But it will have its impact. Historically, it always has. What people do in their bedrooms is not their private affair. It has a ripple impact in the community and the culture. And we have, as a community, a right to speak into that. Jefferson County has decided that one of its premier values that it wants to integrate into Jefferson County is the value of marriage. They want people to stay married. Why? Because they know if a kid grows up without a father, in other words, he's a result of an unmarried pregnancy, it will cost the county $200,000. You begin to look at the levels of drug abuse, the levels of disintegration within the the, the a culture for teenagers, the people incarcerated who are young, and the correlation between that and them not having a father in the mix is astronomical. Maybe there's more connection than we like to admit. Third thing that flies around our culture is this notion of consenting adults. And this is the prevailing ethic uh, um, as long as what's taking place is taking place between consenting adults People are free to do whatever they like, you know, as long as people don't get hurt. And the point I want to point out about this notion of consulting adults is that from a cultural perspective, what our culture is saying, there doesn't have to be any framework of commitment around this relationship for sexual activity to take place. What our culture doesn't realize is when you behave that way, what you're doing is you're commoditizing sex. In other words, sex simply becomes a transaction that is disconnected from relationship and commitment. And our culture thinks that it's okay to give somebody your body without giving them your whole self. And it's this notion that is behind people being sexually active outside of marriage. When you have sex outside of marriage, what you're doing is you're reducing sex to an exchange of products, not an exchange of selves. You're saying, I want pleasure, I want the product, but I don't necessarily want you. It's sex as groceries. It's, it's sex as consumption. It's sex as a commodity. That has happened everywhere in our culture, by the way. It used to be if you wanted to buy a pork roast, you went down to the butcher and you knew the butcher and you had this relationship and the exchange of products took place in the context of this relationship. That's all changed. I mean, you go to Walmart, you don't know anybody. You buy a bike, you buy pork roast, you buy whatever, all your groceries, it's, it's all commodified. Even more so, now we just do it online. We don't have to have any personal contact with anyone. We, we've taken things and we've simply made them commodity. We're, we are doing the same thing with sex. It's devoid of relationship. It's just about the pleasure. That's part of what is behind pornography. There's no relationship between the person and the image on the screen other than a transaction. You've made that person a commodity. And what it does is it makes sex simply a means of self-gratification. But the reality is unconditional intimacy, which is what sex is, demands unconditional commitment. Commitment. 
Fourth, sex is necessary or sex is a necessity. <laughs> this is what is interesting to me. On the one hand, our culture has this extremely low view of sex. Sex is just this activity. It's simply an appetite. On the other hand, we have this incredibly high view of sex. It's the most important thing in all of life. If you have a great sexual relationship, life will be grand. Really? How do we put those two together? Is that what life is about? And, and the result of this is that if we suggest to people that there needs to be boundaries around how people express their sexuality beyond just is it consenting or coercive, there needs to be boundaries, that's anathema. The idea that we would suggest to somebody that they need to be celibate is unheard of is unfair. You're depriving them from the core issue of life and their expression of their identity. It's because our culture thinks that sex is the essential ingredient to living a happy and fulfilled life. We believe that sexual pleasure will take away the loneliness and give people significance. So celibacy is out of the question. (laughs) I I pick this up with the whole debate around homosexuality. I've talked to other believers and I would take the position that if you are oriented that way, it's one thing, the Bible prohibits homosexual activity um, and that the answer to that is a call to celibacy. And I've had people respond, well, that's unfair. You can't ask them to be celibate. That would be totally wrong. And I was thinking about that. Wait a second. All of us are broken in arenas of our sexuality, all right? No matter whether you're gay or straight or married or unmarried, all of us deal with sexual brokenness in our lives. And what that means is all of us have to boundary our sexuality. Nobody gets through life without self-control. Nobody gets through life without saying no. And expressing your sexuality is not the key to happiness. You can be fulfilled and happy without sex or the sexual expression. Uh, Jesus was. (laughs) We don't believe that. Um, But the truth is sex will not grant you purpose or peace or significance. Often it is simply momentary pleasure. If sex made you happy, we would live in an earthly paradise. Uh, Look at what uh, Benedict Rochelle writes. He says, I suppose that half the people you meet on a bus or in a shopping center or even at church on Sunday have had some genital sexual experience during the preceding few days. It is the observation of an old celibate from way back that they are not all so very happy. If sex brought happiness, the world would shine like the sun at least half the time. Celibates need not try to convince themselves that chaste celibacy is the road to earthly bliss. But on the other hand, they need not feel deprived of the key to happiness. There is a single key to contentment. It cannot be sexual experience. That's not what our culture tells us. But here's the thing. 
when you live in a hypersexualized culture that tells you sex is one of the most important things of life, you begin to evaluate life on that basis. And sexuality becomes the key to everything. And if you don't believe that that's happened in our culture, just look at advertising. Sex is used to sell everything. Even though it has nothing to do with most everything. And the ripple effect is horrendous because people begin to think that for them to have significance and to be valued and important, they have to sexualize themselves. So we live in a culture that says to women, your significance is wrapped up with your sexual attractiveness. And then we create a standard to which nobody can measure up. Not even the people in the pictures themselves because they're all touched up. So we live in a culture that is suffering horrendously from anorexia and eating diseases and bulimia. Why? Because we've told these little girls... Man, what's important about you is your sexuality. You have to be thin. You have to be perfect. You have to be right proportioned. And you know what? Nobody is. And even those who are, get old. When you get old, everything falls and stops working. It's a lie. And we buy that lie hook, line, and sinker. having discussions with my son who is 24 about the kind of girl he should marry. And I'm pushing hard on him. The biggest issue is not how attractive she is. And I'm telling him, there are a lot of girls who are gems, who are amazing, that you're not even looking at because you're screwy in how you're thinking about sexuality. I'm not pointing that out just about my son. That's true of every other single guy I know. Because they bought the lie of our culture. And what makes a great relationship is great sex. It's not true. Don't mishear me. I'm not opposed to great sex. I just don't think it's the key to life. Last one. Only love matters. This is the romantic view of sex. It says that if we have feelings for each other and the feelings are mutual, then sex is okay. Not only is sex okay, but it is to be expected. There has, doesn't have to be any other framework to justify our sexual activity. No larger commitment structure around us. And the result of this is that people engage in serial monogamy. Only about 30% of people engage in a one-night stand or or sex on the first date. Most people don't. I I mean, for women, the average number of sexual partners in life is six. For men, it's 20. What they're engaging is is serial monogamy. They go from exclusive relationship to exclusive relationship. And they think to themselves, well, we love each other, so it must be okay. And, and, And to call them to marriage... Uh, they, they assume, well, that's archaic and old-fashioned. Just a note. We are chronological snobs. What I mean by that is we think we got it right and the rest of history always got it wrong. 
But do you know every major branch of Christianity, whether it's the Orthodox or the Catholics or the Protestants, and even Islam and, and, and Judaism, have had the same sexual ethic that sex is to be protected and only expressed in the context of marriage. And they've held on to that sexual ethics for thousands of years. And we, because we know so much more within the blink of an eye, say, now they, they got it wrong. Really? Maybe they know something we don't. When you think of a serial monogamy and you think that's okay, let, let, let me just throw this out to you. Research shows again and again and again those romantic feelings that you get that seem overwhelming that when you're infatuated, with you, when you're in love, when life is so grand, you just can't live without that other person. Those feelings last 18 to 24 months. <laughs> All kinds of research. They, they've studied this again and again. 18 to 24 months and then they subside which is a great explanation for serial monogamy, right? I'm in love with a person, 18 months, two years. Oh, I'm not sure I feel that way anymore. Time to move on. Oh, I'm in love. I mean, this is the soulmate. This is my life partner for 18 or 24 months. And then we're buying the lie and doing damage in the process. Um, a couple notes about how our culture sees sex. This kind of thinking, it's in the water. Nobody in the media or in the culture is sitting down and saying, hell, this is what I believe about sex and this is what I want to propagate. They're not even, they, they, it's just in the water. It's just a, on the canvas of the backdrop they do art and media. And, and here's the truth, we're drinking the Kool-Aid we're taking this stuff in through the media, the songs, all the stuff in our culture, and, and we have no filter. We're just buying it, and it's subtle enough that it becomes part of our values without us ever being discerning enough to say, no, this, that's not right. My kids always wanted to watch Friends. Hated the show because of this. Finally told them, look, I'm not going to fight the battle. You can watch Friends, but you have to sit down and write down what the values are. That shifts your perspective. You begin to see things that you never saw before. And by the way, it's not just my, it's, it's me, it's you, it's everybody in our culture. We watch all this stuff and we take it in and we let down our guard and we begin to imbibe the values. And, and <laughs> the values aren't thought through. Uh, um, for most people, they don't sit down, even individually, they don't sit down and develop a sexual ethic and then say, I'm going to go live this way. Most people, they live in the moment. They do what feels good, and then having done that, they have all these feelings afterwards, so they try to come up with this explanation and framework, this ethical standard that will make them feel okay about what they've already done. So if you feel guilty and ashamed, one option is find forgiveness. The other option is say, well, what I did wasn't wrong. It's natural. We were in love. It felt good. The other thing that's interesting is these are self-contradictory. I don't know if you picked that up, 
But you can't say sex is simply sex and sex is the most important thing in life. It doesn't work. They're just these pieces. There's not a holistic sexual ethic that's very consistent or viable. People just pick the, the piece of the ethical culture around them that happens to fit their behavior at the moment. So what I want to suggest to you is there is a biblical ethic or theology around sex. I want us to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6, um, verses 13 through 20. Paul is writing to a situation in Corinth where people in the church are sleeping with prostitutes. And he's making the argument that they shouldn't do that. And he's appealing to his sexual ethic, his understanding of what sex is, and applying it to that particular situation. Now, my point this morning isn't to talk about why you shouldn't sleep with prostitutes. I want to get behind and understand the theology that Paul is bringing to his argument, because that's where we see the sexual ethic of the New Testament, of the Bible. And basically, there are three things. Here they are. Sex is good. Sex is spiritual glue, and sex has boundaries. Let me show you that in the text. First is sex is good. Verse 13 says, You say, food for the stomach and stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. In other words, people are making this argument, look, the physical side of life God doesn't care about, it's bad, it's evil, so it doesn't matter what you do on the physical side. And in the end, God destroys all the physical part of life anyway. So, so what difference does it make how you, you act sexually? And notice what he says. No, the body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. He said, no, the, the body is not evil. It, it's designed for a purpose. God designed it for his purposes. And the Lord for the body, by his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. He said, Nick, how, how do you get sex as good out of that? Well, listen, Okay. By design and intent, not by mistake, we are physical beings. We are designed to serve God in a physical way. As C.S. Lewis notes, God is a materialist. He loves the physical aspect of reality. We are physical by design. And not only are we physical by design, but our physical nature will persist. In other words, when Jesus was resurrected from the grave, he was stamping the reality that the physical side of life matters. Because when Jesus is resurrected, he has both a spiritual nature and a physical nature, and they come together. And physicality is part of eternity. We have this notion that we become Christians and die and go to heaven and sit on clouds and are just spiritual beings. That's bad theology. It's not true. You die, you're with God, but then you're eventually resurrected. And eternity, heaven, is here, us living in a physical dimension of life. Physical nature is not temporary. Physicality is part of God's eternal design for us. So what does that mean? That means the physical is good. God loves the physical. We, we fall into this trap of thinking the spiritual side of life is, is good and the physical side of life is bad. That's not true. Physical isn't bad and the spiritual is not good. They're both good. Spirituality is not anti-physical. God is sensate. 
He created the world and everything in it. And he gave us pleasure as part of that physical position, uh, uh, physical creation. And I think God takes pleasure in his physical creation. I think he gets a kick out of pandas and watching penguins waddle on the ice. I think he loves that. And what that means is that sex in its proper context is great. I mean, come on, folks. God is the one who designed it. (laughs) He could have created us so we reproduce asexually, like an earthworm. Be a lot more efficient. Not nearly as fun, but a lot more efficient. But he didn't do that. Why? Because sex is this gift that we're given to enjoy in the context of a marriage relationship. It's this great thing. It's good. It's okay to enjoy the physical side of life. It's okay to enjoy music and food and the physicality. That's part of how we are to give God glory. And what that means is one of the purposes of sex is pleasure in its proper context. You know, the, the Bible doesn't endorse the prudishness of some conservative elements of our culture. <laughs> I mean, if you're honest and you're reading the Bible, it will embarrass you at times. Pick up the Song of Solomon's. And, and, and the metaphors there are exactly what you think they are. We, we don't think they are because we think he can't be really saying that. Oh my gosh, he's really saying that. I mean, it's very descriptive of what's going on in the sexual act. Preach through the Song of Solomon and it made me blush because God's not approved. I mean, he understands sexuality and it's his gift to be enjoyed. Historically, I think some people in the church have said, you know, sex was created after the fall, that it's intrinsically evil, that marriage is, in marriage it's merely tolerated for procreation. That's, that's not true. It's not. Even though discussions about it sometimes make us uncomfortable. The little girl playing on the playground, she heard all these, these words she hadn't heard before. She ran home to her mom and began asking her what the words meant. And the mom was pretty sharp. She said, honey, those are, are words that people sometimes rudely use to describe something good that God gave us to enjoy. And and like a pro, man, her mom just began to explain the facts of life. And after this detailed explanation of reproduction and intimacy, the little girl paused just to digest the information. And then she was really puzzled and kind of shocked. The little girl was one of seven children, so she finally asked her mom this question. You mean you and Daddy did that seven times? I think sometimes we're, we're so uncomfortable we don't know what to do with this notion of sex. There is no shame in marital sex. Some couples, if they're honest, would say, you know, when we make love, God kind of turns his back and twiddles his thumbs. No, he doesn't. God's not ashamed of sex, the physical side of life. In reality, the fun of sex is one of the things that makes being married one of the greatest joys God offers us in this life. It's great. So in marriage, enjoy it. It's good. Somebody said amen. (laughs) I don't get many of those, but I'll take that one. (laughs) Second, 
Not only is sex good, but sex is spiritual glue. Look at uh, 15 through 17. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said the two will become one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Now, the word for unite here is a word that, that refers to the process of gluing something. And in this text, uh, Paul is not talking about the physical act of sex as what's uniting people. If he was, it would be redundant. He's saying that there's something beyond the physical that is taking place in the act of sex where the two become one flesh. Not just physically, but emotionally, spiritually. They become one. They know each other in this intimate way. There is no such thing as safe sex. There's no such thing as casual sex. Because when you have sex, there is more than something simply physical going on there. Deep spiritual realities are involved. C.S. Lewis writes this in the Screwtape Letters. He says, The truth is that wherever a man lies with a woman, there, whether they like it or not, a transcendental relation is set up between them, which must be eternally enjoyed or eternally endured. Wow, something spiritual is happening that lasts forever. Sexual intercourse is not external to you. It affects you at the very core of who you are. Sex is far more than a physical act. It's an act that involves the whole person, body, emotion, soul. Something mysterious and deep is taking place in this union. It's spiritual glue. I was talking to a friend who uh, spent four months building a guitar from scratch out of wood. And he was showing us pictures and how he had taken all the parts and then glued them together. And the question I, I was curious about, I said, well, what kind of glue did he use? I figured it had to be some kind of special glue to, to hold this guitar together. And he says, oh, Elmer's. I said, you got to be kidding. You, Elmer's? Yeah, Elmer's white glue. He said, it's amazing stuff. You may not realize this, but when you use Elmer's white glue, it, it, it gets into the very pores of the wood and, and it bonds the wood in such a way that when you try to bake the bonds, it will destroy the wood. And that's what Paul is saying about sex. Do you get what he's point here? This is really interesting. He's saying, look, when you become a believer in Jesus... God becomes part of you. You're part of Jesus, and Jesus is part of you. The Holy Spirit indwells you. Now, if you're a believer and you go link yourself with a prostitute through the act of sex, don't you understand that because when you have sex, there's this spiritual connection of becoming one. Not only are you taking you and linking it to the prostitute, you're taking the Lord Jesus Christ and through you linking it to the prostitute. God forbid! That's monstrous! Don't do that! That's his argument. But do you understand his understanding of sex? Sex is covenant renewal. Sex is not simply for procreation or pleasure, but the purpose, the ultimate purpose of sex is oneness. It's this mysterious intimacy. God invented sex as a way for one person to say to another person, I belong completely and exclusively to you and you alone. 
You see, that's what makes sex so great in marriage and sex so important to marriage. Because sex is this bonding experience. That's why if you get married and you... If the, the, there's no sex in the marriage, if the marriage is never consummated, then you're not married. Because sex is a sign of the covenant of you weaving your life together of two people becoming one. So when you have sex regularly with your spouse, with the same partner who you're committed to for a lifetime, it's this greatest pleasure with this most special person and it bonds you. And, and it's like covenant renewal. You're, you're saying to that person, every time you have sex in a good marriage, you're create, recreating that ability to trust someone totally. You're making yourself, that's why, you know, you take your clothes off and you're completely vulnerable and you're completely naked and they see you for who you are and you're bonding together. It's, it, it's the glue. It's covenant commitment. Now think about that. If that's what sex is, then it makes incredible sense that that should only take place within the framework, a larger framework of this thing called marriage where you're committed to someone for a lifetime. Because for that kind of intimacy to take place, there has to be this framework of safety and complete commitment. Otherwise, it is going to leave you damaged. You see, sex is commitment apparatus. It's a way of opening yourself up to somebody else who's your spouse. And when you have sex outside of marriage, you're fighting against the very thing that sex was designed to do. talking to a counselor and he's saying and this Christian counselor he's talking about couples that are swinging they don't see much right sex is just appetite and what's happening they're ending up in his office because when you have sex with somebody else you get connected and now all this just sex is appetite it's not just appetite it's, it's causing these these bonds to be created and now these marriages are disintegrating because they thought they could just swing and you know it's just sex and it's not just sex. And he's saying, it's the lie of our culture. You can't have sex with somebody and simply lay aside your soul and your emotions and your identity. This is a problem with cohabitation, couples living together outside of marriage. What they're doing when they do that, they're giving their body without giving their whole self. Because you see, to be married, you have to give your whole self. You have to be totally committed in for a lifetime. Because marriage is based on the, this covenant, these vows, right? For good, for bad, for better, for worse, in health and in sickness. Those vows have meaning from our culture because they're saying that's what makes marriage work is that, that lifetime commitment. Don't take them lightly. But when you cohabitate, you're trying to get the benefits of marriage without the commitment of marriage. And, and you're making it conditional. 
and if you're living with somebody, you won't like this, but if you're living with someone, you may love them, but you really haven't given yourself to them. And what you've done is you've taken sex and you've made it a consumer item, a commodity, because you're retaining the right to get out of the relationship if your needs are not being met at acceptable cost. In other words, you go into it with this conditional notion. It's consumer-based. You're saying, I'm committed, but only kind of, because if this doesn't work out, I'm out of here. If we're not compatible, I'm out of here. If somebody better comes along, I'm out of here. If the sex isn't great, I'm out of here. If the feelings don't stay, I'm out of here. It's conditional. You haven't given yourself. You haven't committed yourself. And you're making sex less than what it's intended to be in a wrong context. And you're setting yourself up for failure. You know, it makes so much intuitive sense, doesn't it, to live with somebody? Because then you find out if you're compatible sexually and physically and you can live together. I mean, it makes so much sense. And you would think that those people who live together are far more successful at marriage. And it doesn't happen. You're 50% more likely to get divorced if you live together. Do you know why? Because when you live together, you plant the seeds of conditionality in your relationship. You're saying, I'm committed to you as long as you meet my needs. That's why we're living together, to see if we can be committed to each other, because if we're not, then I'm out of here. But you take that into marriage. So when things get hard, it's not for better or for worse. It's not for sickness and health. It's not for as long as we both shall live. It's only as long as things are going well, because that was the basis of the relationship. Which leads us to the third principle, sex has boundaries. I mean, you understand that, don't you? If sex is this commitment apparatus and it's this great thing in the context of marriage, then you have to protect it and there has to be boundaries. So Paul says, flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against his own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? Not your own. You were bought with the price, therefore, honor God with your bodies. Sexual immorality is this word, porneia, that we get pornography from. It's this catch-all phrase that describes all kinds of sexual activity outside the bounds of marriage. Whether it's premarital or extramarital, it, it would talk about having sex with prostitutes. It would talk about the notion of pornography. It would talk about inappropriate sexual lust. Any sexual relationship outside the permanent bond of marriage or the bounds of marriage is porneia. Why, why does he say flee? Because it's lo- the logical implication of what he's saying. He says sex is more than this physical but spiritual. So, so you want to stay as far away from sexual sin as possible because it's going to, to impact you at the very core. In fact, Paul says this strange thing. He says, whoever sins sexually sins against his own body. And he's not talking physically. He's talking spiritually, soulishly. He's talking about the internal state. He's saying when you you sin sexually, you're sinning against yourself. You're, You're taking that commitment apparatus and using it for your own destruction. You know what sticky notes are? Now you take them and you put them on something that sticks and then you take it off, put it on something else and on something else and on something else. And what happens? It loses its stickiness. 
When you take sex out of this, the context of marriage where it's supposed to be like the sticky note binding you together and you start putting it on other people, you begin to lose the stickiness. And in fact, the very thing that was supposed to take away your loneliness and produce intimacy begins to work against you and backwards. Listen to what Craig Barnes writes. He says, most of the people enter into a sexual relationship outside of marriage are not promiscuous people. They are lonely people. They're looking for connection. But they are the ones who are discovering that sex does nothing, even for lonely married people. The only time our longing for God is met through the sacrament of sex is when we are one flesh, when we can say this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. God has this incredible design for sex within the marriage that shows us the intimacy ultimately we're to have to God to be known and know. And you take it outside and it diminishes. Its power fades. So what does Paul say? He says, flee. Constantly be fleeing immorality. Make it your habit to run away. Do everything in your power to avoid sexual sin. What's that mean? It it may mean if you're in a relationship and you're not married and you're having sex, maybe you need to get out of the relationship. You need to, to stop. And if you can't stop, quit the relationship. Or if it's the right person, get married. And if a person says, well, I'm not ready for marriage, then they're not ready for sex. Don't let them get it cheap. I read this article this week on the economy of sex and was just talking about how women have lost power in our culture because we've degraded marriage and we've raised up cohabitation. <laughs> just saying, it used to be that if you wanted sex, you got married. Now, you're going to have milk without buying the cow. Why buy the cow? I don't mean to be crass, but that's what's happening in our culture. So the rate of marriage in our culture is now below 50%. What does that do to the structure of the family? What does it do to kids? The reason the state has an interest in protecting the family is because it has an interest in protecting kids and they know that kids do best in a family. Don't let somebody pull the wool over your eyes. Tell them, hey, if you want to be committed to me, you marry me. And if you don't want to be committed to me, then we're not going to have sex because that's what sex is about. Maybe you need to put filters on your phone, your tablet, and your computer. Pornography is just destroying, destroying relationships, destroying people's view of the opposite sex. Is resulting in huge addictive behaviors. And it's privatizing it. On a computer, a tablet, or, or f- phones? Anywhere, anytime. Put a filter on it. Get an accountability partner. Have somebody check the logs. Maybe you just need to come clean. We have this notion that 
sex is such a private thing, we don't want to tell anybody. And we have this, we believe this lie that we can overcome it on our own. That if I just screw up my self-control, I'll be okay. And I, yeah, I did it that time, but I'm not going to do it again. And after I do it again, I'm saying, I'm not going to do it again. And we lie to ourselves. We need to bring people who are faithful and understanding and grace-filled into that struggle. Let me give you some resources. Uh, Sex and the iPhone is one that's not up here. It's usually in our bookstore. It's a great book as well. These two books, Real Sex and Surfing for God, are not in our bookstore right now. They have, uh, Surfing for God has been. It's just sold out. And Real Sex is a book I came across this week. Truth about chastity, well-written, good understanding of sex. I'd encourage you if if it's of interest or would speak to you to grab that. Surfing for God is written for people struggling with pornography. Michael Kuzik actually attends church here. Um, Great book. He did an awesome job of really getting to the core issues of why people go after pornography. Then the gospel and homosexuality. I didn't get to talk about homosexuality this morning. I didn't have time. But it, it's a big issue. This is a paper written by Hunter Beaumont, who's the pastor of Fellowship Denver. Great, great paper. There's copies out on the info desk. There'll be copies in the bookstore. If you want a digital copy, email, and I'll send it to you. But it explores the whole issue of homosexuality from a biblical standpoint. Great job and uh, very helpful. Good resources. Take advantage of them. So sex is good, sex is spiritual glue, and sex needs boundaries. I know this morning for some of you, this has been a hard message, and my guess is for for a lot of us, this has been a hard series. And right now, you're kind of sitting there, and God has brought all these things up, uh, and you're feeling guilty and ashamed. Maybe you're feeling like nobody else struggles like you struggle. Nobody else has sinned like you've sinned. Can can I tell you something? That's not true. There is not a person in this room who has not sinned sexually either in deed or thought. Not one. Everybody wrestles with sexual brokenness. It's part of the fall. And maybe it's past behavior, maybe it's present behavior, maybe it's lustful thoughts or pornography, maybe it's allowing your self-esteem to be based on your sexual attractiveness, maybe it's using sex as a weapon in your marriage, maybe it's fantasizing about somebody else's marriage or somebody else's relationship. Nobody's above temptation. Maybe you have broken your marriage vows. Maybe you need to come clean Maybe you've gone too far in a relationship and need an accountability person. What I want you to know is there is grace and forgiveness and mercy in Jesus Christ. He wants to forgive you where you've messed up. He wants to heal us where we've been damaged. He wants to change our lives. And God wants us to know forgiveness. And really the question is, will you let him forgive you? We are all far more sinful than we ever realized. 
And this morning, you just be, be a little bit more aware of that reality. But the truth is, we are far more loved than we ever hoped. And here's the greatest thing to know as a believer in Jesus Christ. God has bought you. Did you see that in verse 20? You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. God bought you. He didn't wait for you to get the sexual brokenness of your lives cleaned up before he bought you. He didn't wait until you had it all together before he made the purchase. He bought you as is, broken and all. And he's washed you and forgiven you. Jesus died for all of your sin, past, present, and future. All the things that you have done, all the times you've screwed up, all the bad decisions you've made, all the bad relationships you've been in. He purchased you and paid for you and has forgiven you. And that is grace. God's undeserved forgiveness. Can you accept it? Let's stand. If you're struggling this morning, I would love to, to pray with you, and I've asked some of the elders to come down front. Um, I'm going to close the service. I think you guys are going to play as people go out, but uh, I want to invite you down to be prayed for this morning. If this is one of the areas you're struggling with, or if it's just something else, I'd love to pray for you as well. Let's, let's close with a benediction. You now, the people of Waterstone, may we not be sexual atheists. May we believe that God has designed this great gift of sex, and may we put it in its right context, and may we enjoy it as a gift. And may we live sexual lives that are pleasing to you, Lord. Touch us in the deepest part of our souls. Help us experience your grace and your power and your spirit. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ and for his sake and his honor and all God's people said, Amen. Amen.